Great, thanks, Peter and Ben. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome back to most of you if you're brand new. As Ben said, welcome to you. Especially glad to have you here for one of our services. Um, we are in a series right now, a, a short three-week uh, kind of hiatus from the Gospel of John, which we've been in for several, of, several months, and we'll return to that in a couple of weeks. But we um, have been taking a break to uh, talk about our vision and values as a church, kind of through this lens, through a series called Hiawatha's Story in Three Verses. Uh, so we have three weeks here. Today is week two, if you weren't here last week. But uh, this is our attempt to identify three verses of the Bible, singular verses, that best encapsulate our story, our values, and our beliefs at the highest level. So it's not exhaustive. Obviously, uh, if you want something more exhaustive, uh, much more exhaustive, come to our class on the 24th. If you have not been to intro class yet, love to have you there. Uh, Talk to me or Spence or sign up on the app. Um, But these are still things we would say, three verses that at the highest level and maybe in the most summative way, uh, really speak to who we are, our story, where we've come from, the culture we want to have here and do have here, and are working for more of that here, and also um, some of our top drawer beliefs uh, theologically uh, as well. So kind of really, it's geared to you if you're new since COVID, really, in in some capacity, um, but really for all of you, uh, whether you are a member for 10 years, you know, it's hopefully it's reorienting as well. We've never actually quite looked at our vision and values kind of through this lens, so hopefully it's uh, kind of a fresh way for you too. So last week, uh, the verse we started the series with was Acts 4.13, which reads, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so we saw our story in that, we saw the gospel in that, some of our values too. Um, and I'm not going to go back and summarize all that today. Um, it'd be two sermons if I did. Uh, but... Uh, that was last week. This week is 1 Corinthians 2.2, which is uh, when Paul says, I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A little context to this verse. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, wrote this as well. It was a letter written to uh, kind of a baby church in the city of Corinth in the first century, not terribly long after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Um, and the church has a, a lot of issues, a lot of dysfunction, like we all do, like every church does, like, like we do. Um, but one of which was factionalism and pride. So factions were forming, cliques were forming, kind of around different leaders, sort of like uh, pick your favorite pastor and apostle, and people are kind of wearing their badge on their arm and bragging about it, kind of lifting themselves above other people um, because of that. And lots of infighting as well uh, came with it, and it was mixed all up with lots of arrogance, uh, as, as you might expect. And so um, the first part of this letter then, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, is addressing all of that. Not just by saying stop it, but in a more nuanced way. Uh, three ways, in fact, uh, that relate. One, by showing how the cross, the center of our faith where Jesus died, is a foolish thing to the world. It's a foolish thing. Um, two, how Christians are a foolish bunch meaning we're not all that great. We talked about this last week, actually, that the benefits of having a low anthropology or a view of human nature uh, that came up kind of through the lens of Acts 4. But, um, but then also this third angle of how Christian preaching is a foolish mode of oration. This is part of Paul's broader argument in chapter 2 especially, but also kind of leaning back into chapter 1, how Christian preaching is a foolish mode of speaking, of, of oration and maybe even persuasion, he would say, at least kind of understood from like a a worldly uh, vantage point. More on that later. 
But, but these things he says, quote, shame the wise. These things altogether, shame the wise. They bring us low. They confound our philosophies, meaning they show us how it's not by our wisdom that we're saved. It's not by our, our approaches, our uh, attempts, our goodness that we're saved, but, by a, but instead by a bloody cross, how we're saved on God's terms, not ours. So they show us then that it's God who owns salvation. It's his to give, uh, again, on his terms, not ours to sort of um, derive or, or accomplish. All right, lots more to say about that. I'll actually come back to the context uh, in the third section uh, of, of today's sermon. Uh, that gives you a little bit of an idea of why he's saying this. Um, it's actually kind of to make a point. It's actually to kind of quell pride. Like if all, that's, all that I said is true um, and then some, it's just hard to be, it's much harder to be arrogant underneath that. You know, like it's the message itself, uh, our view as Christians, uh, the view of our own nature uh, being foolish. Um, and then, you know, Paul, Paul's approach to bringing the gospel to the city. There's really nothing for the Corinthians to brag about. Like nothing, if you think about it, as, and us as well. And so um, it, it is really the best stopper to arrogance is the gospel itself uh, in understanding how the gospel comes into a city and into our hearts and who we are as recipients and who God is as, as the giver. Um, and so, uh, so today then we're going to look at this idea of one gospel. Last week was um, simple people. This week is one gospel uh, from 1 Corinthians 2, 2. That the outline is going to be the same. We're going to talk about how this verse kind of informs our history, our story, where we came from some of our values and our way of doing things as a church, the drums we like to beat, the rhythms we like to encourage, and then our theology as well, which is kind of when I'll just basically preach this verse in its uh, immediate context uh, as well, so that you can kind of see some of our big top-drawer beliefs uh, and just kind of an example of how we'd preach a passage uh, here, especially if you're, you're brand new. All right, so let's go to our history first. So um, this verse is very special to us. Uh, because when those of us who started this church 16 years ago were meeting the summer beforehand, uh, for one of our meetings, which we called launch team meetings, we studied this passage. And I can remember it, or at least parts of it, pretty vividly, which is strange because I don't have a lot of very tangible memories of those meetings because it's just been so long now, it's all a blur. Um, but I remember be, being in our, our sending church's basement, which is Hope Community Church, which is downtown, some of you um, know of that church, you were part of that church maybe, or just know of it, but um, if you were part of that church, I think like over five or six years ago, I forgot when they did this or when they changed it, but they used to have in their basement this mini golf course green carpet. Do you guys remember that? And the texture as well. Like I think they actually like repurposed a mini golf turf or something. It was just nasty, uh, but that's, that was their basement carpet. They've since changed it, praise the Lord, um, but that's, that's where we met. And we met to talk about Hiawatha Church. The, the, the essence of our meetings were usually, um, you know, building projects. We were given this building by a dying church, which is another, another cool story. So what we had to kind of do in here, get it ready for public services, advertising, outreach to the neighborhood, uh, and prayer. We always pray together a ton. Um, but we always started with studying the Bible together. And for one of those meetings, we studied 1 Corinthians 2 too. And I remember it being a really rich study. We studied it kind of like, you know, just at face value, but also as church planters, like people getting ready to start a church, which is kind of cool because you, you always have a blank piece of paper in front of you when you start a church. It's like we can do, we kind of, in one sense, kind of do what we want. We can make this church what we want it to be. Not in every sense of the word. We, you know, we, the Bible is 
our guide, but I, I just mean like we can talk about what things we want to do, what we want to emphasize, and things like that. And so we um, read this verse kind of through that lens as well, and we asked questions like, what if we started a church built on the premise that this verse was good, true, beautiful, and worthy of building an entire philosophy of ministry around? What if we, you know, uh, didn't put an asterisk on it, didn't apologize for it? What if we decided ultimately to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified as we brought the gospel to more people in South Minneapolis? What if in that we operated out of weakness versus our strength? And through the foolishness of what we preach, God would maybe just decide to save some, just a few people along the way, not to mention persevere a community of faith along the way as well. What if that was enough for us? Like, are we content in that? Like, those, those kind of questions um, came up in, in that meeting. So, on, on a personal note for me, uh, this verse, among other things, um, helped me when I was younger in my faith to see that Paul had a category for emphasizing certain things theologically. Because as many, as many of you know, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, and he said lots of things in them, some of which you could argue are not cross-explicit. You know, things like, the importance of abstaining from sexual sin or of praying continually or topics like spiritual gifts or singleness and marriage, among other things. But each of those things aren't talked about in a vacuum. They all have context, and context is the broader wealth of Scripture and the gospel itself. So uh, verses like 1 Corinthians 2.2, I think, um, even aside from what they're actually saying, like they show kind of in the background, they show that Paul had a hierarchy of theology in mind. A hierarchy of scripture, you could say. There are things worth pressing on, and there are things sometimes worth leaving unsaid. But the cross is never something we leave unsaid, ever. Uh, sometimes there's more to say, uh, but the more isn't necessarily equally important. The cross is the better word, and it stands above the other words of Paul. That's why I think Paul can talk in these terms, even though he knows he said a bunch of other stuff. He does not have amnesia. You know, he understands he has other things to say to the church about different things, but he can still say this and mean it, both as an evangelist when he brought the gospel to them, but also now as a pastor from afar who's writing to Christians who need to keep understanding the primacy of Christ crucified. And so I'm categorizing this under history because it, it has to do with my own theological journey, but also as one of the people who set the theological culture of this church um, this is where this is coming from. It's verses like this, and this is not a standalone verse by any stretch. It's this idea that kind of permeates the pages of the letters of the New Testament where you see the apostles seem to emphasize certain things and de-emphasize other things. Uh, and how we kind of categorize those things are, um, are really important. And, and, and that kind of leads us into this next section then, which is our values. Um, and before we get into more like how we think here, in terms of gospel centrality, just a kind of a background and a little bit of history lesson. About, I want to say about 15 to 20 years ago, roughly, it may have been before that as well, uh, but I was in my early 20s then, so, you know, it's kind of like um, I was a baby before that, so I was like, maybe it was around then too, I just didn't know about it. But I think it was about 15, 20 years ago, there was a resurgence of what was called gospel centrality in, in a lot of churches. It was a cross-denominational, cross-church tradition movement uh, but, but there was this sense from a number of church traditions in the West especially 
that the gospel was being lost and shelved for the sake of secondary matters. Um, my old pastor used to say uh, that um, it was, uh, it was um, assumed, that the gospel was assumed. We, we assume people know it. We assume people get an A when they took a test on who Jesus ultimately was and what he came to do. And so because of that, we're going to assume that's the case for the most part. Unless someone tells us they're a non-Christian, then we'll share the gospel with them. But we're going to shelve that and talk about more pressing matters about the Christian life. And there, I may be exaggerating a little bit here, but that was definitely happening, still is happening today, depending on where you're at, what, what church you're a part of. Um, but I think there is this, there is this urgency behind uh, and sense to which a lot of churches were seeing that as a bad thing. And we would say we are one of those churches that rode high on the wave of this resurgence of gospel centrality back in the late 2000s especially, and we still are today. Um, one of the first books I read on church planting and church liturgy and church polity and getting ready to plant a church was a book by Mark Dever called Deliberate Church, Building Your Ministry on the Gospel. And I think it's still in print, and I think it's aged pretty well. Um, so if you're interested in reading it, I, I'd recommend it. Um, but it, was, it wasn't that book alone necessarily that shaped a lot of my thinking in this area. It was my old church and the, the Bible primarily. But I appreciated at that time that there were more voices getting published on how to centralize the gospel of Jesus Christ when it came to what a church did and what a church valued and what their ministries looked like, what their Sunday morning liturgies um, or rhythms or patterns were all about. So uh, I mentioned uh, a hierarchy of theology before, but there's also a hierarchy of ministry, meaning not everything a church does is of equal importance. Not everything a church does is of equal importance. I, I think that's logical to say, uh, reasonable, I, I would say, but more importantly, biblical. Like, there's no sense in, in the scriptures that every single thing a church, a church does are valid. Though there might be many that they're all, like, in a static way, uh, existing on the same level, same shape and size and, and all that stuff. Um, and at this point in my life in ministry, I, I would say, it's one of, I think, the most important things pastors and church planners need to get a handle on. And I, I say that now because when I was in my 20s, I didn't have a lot of experience. I hadn't seen a lot of churches kind of exist or fall or start or dissolve. Um, but now as someone who has and who has actually assessed a lot of church planners and know a lot of uh, churches and uh, cross-denominationally as well, is that if we don't have a handle on this stuff in leadership, uh, it really gets confusing for people to follow that in the church, like um, to follow, a, you know, a, a leadership team or follow a vision or follow like something that you centralize takes clarity. And when you have a thousand good things you could do, um, how do you talk about that to people, you know, rather than just say, great, that's the 999th thing we can do. Let's just go do it because someone had an idea. Um, I think it takes like careful thought, you know, and uh, about how these things fit together and um, how, wh where the gospel is in all of this, you know, because if you have greater things and lesser things, great, but where's the gospel fit in all of that, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how do we talk about it uh, in, in those terms? Uh, it's a crucial thing to do. We are, by, we are far from perfect in our explication of these things and our handling of them, but we've at least striven to do this. We want to be clear with you guys on the majors and the minors, the greaters and the lessers, the suns and the moons, uh, because Scripture talks in these terms itself but also it's just sensical and it's much easier to live underneath that clarity than the chaos. 
So for us then, when we were starting Hiawatha Church, we wanted to keep with that idea that the planets that make up our church would orbit around the sun of the gospel, that the theological gravity of the, the sun of the gospel of Jesus Christ would kind of keep in the ministerial choices that we made, the ministries we started, the things that we chose to value and do, and that they weren't separate. Um, again, it gets back to that same idea of the, the harm that can come from separating out those ideas. Um, and we wanted that to be clear to our church indefinitely as well. Uh, one example of this, I know a lot of you know this, so just kind of bear with me, but one example of this is how we talk about things like hospitality. Uh, we've always had a, had a value of hospitality at the church. When you're really small, we had someone who kind of took it on her shoulders to um, invite brand new people over for dinner or to make sure they were connected with someone for the sake of having a meal and talking about the church. And we kind of quickly grew out of that, but it was when you're like 30 people big, it's, it's kind of helpful to have someone that can actually organize something like that. So um, we've always valued eating together. We've always valued food. We've always valued hospitality and being a welcoming culture. But what we value even more is the fact that Christ was hospitable to us through his death and resurrection. All right, so, and scripture teaches this. Romans 15, 7 says, God has welcomed us to himself through Jesus. God is hospitable to you, his enemy, uh, through his son in, in his spilt blood. Uh, it's like he turned on the front light of his house. He set a a place at his table. So now we dine with the king, his sons and daughters, because of Jesus' spilt blood, because sin, sin's been atoned for. One of the words given over to that gospel is hospitality. God is the most hospitable being in the entire universe. That might not be a word you think about giving over to God, but it, we should, it is. God is the most hospitable being in the universe, the most welcoming, the most, um, he, he, he makes us feel comfortable when we're with him and safe, when he feeds us, he is the ultimate food himself, right? And so, so, but understanding those two things, like our impetus are all called to be hospitable, but then the idea that God was first hospitable to us, seeing how those things relate. The latter is the son. The former, our hospitality towards one another, is one of the planets or a moon or something, like it's out here. Uh, both are important, but it's, it's a matter of greater and, uh, and lesser. This is part of how we want to look at the imperatives of the New Testament. This is not an exhaustive take on this, to be clear, but um, one of the ways we talk about them here and see them, because we think Scripture does this, is they're not just imperatives or commands for our life, but they're opportunities to put the gospel on display as the body of Christ, which is who we are as the church. Um, so we want to move away from things like, you know, talking as though, okay, you're a Christian, now just go and do what God wants you to do, period, end of sentence, to something a bit more, a bit more nuanced and a bit more elaborate and a bit more biblical. Like, okay, you're a Christian, now live in freedom and love, knowing you're okay in Jesus. And, and look for opportunities as you read the letters of the New Testament and see this encouraged wisdom for our life. Look for opportunities to put an image to the gospel, like, to put on physical display what Jesus did for us on the cross, uh, in this case, with our acts of hospitality uh, towards one another, both to Christians and non-Christians. And um, it, m many of the New Testament imperatives explicitly uh, ground themselves in this idea, uh, in the gospel, for this very reason. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another 
as God in Christ has forgiven you. So it's not just forgive, it, it's forgive in the shadow of how you've first been forgiven. And, it's that, that, and that's the sun. The latter thing is the sun. It's the thing that get, gives the, the gravity and, and the power to, for us to orbit. With our forgiving of each other, it's what kind of keeps us in check and keeps that idea of forgiveness not just a rote command or a law, but a grace, like something we get to do, something that um, puts on display the fact that God is the most forgiving being in the universe, and we see that through Jesus Christ. So church, live that way, but live underneath the fact that you've first been forgiven much worse of much worse things than you've been offended by, by someone else in your life. I would say that when you draw from the gospel of grace to think this way, I, I think that we live distinctly spiritually uh, when we do it. That is to say, we put his work on display, not our own. And again, I, I think this way of thinking permeates the pages of the New Testament. Uh, it's, for time's sake, we can't go too much deeper, but this is easily missed. Uh, if, again, if we're not reminded of the relationality between Christian living and gospel theology. Another thing I say sometimes is, the gospel why is more important than the biblical what. As important as the latter is, the gospel why is actually much more important uh, so, in other words, we can approach a verse in a rule-based way or a gospel way. Uh, another illustration here would be like the idea that the New Testament says, be generous with one another. If there's a poor person among your church in some capacity, uh, seek to give sacrificially to him or her, uh, and in that way, love them. Uh, I'm paraphrasing a, a bunch of different verses when I say that, but that is, uh, again, we'd categorize that under an, an imperative, an, an encouraged way of living for uh, churches and for Christians. Um, but with that in mind, we, we can either say, the Bible says be generous, so we need to be obedient to that, or else, period. Um, or we can say, the Bible says be generous, but it doesn't just do so in part, uh, or it does so in part because the most generous being in the universe lives inside of us. And when we're generous, we put his cross-centered generosity on display. We bear his fruit. And so, Sometimes just saying the Bible says so isn't enough because the Bible doesn't talk in those terms all the time. Like that's, that's something we, we approach Scripture with because it's God's Word and we should. Uh, but the way the Bible talks is not just the Bible says so, but the Gospel says so. The Gospel is in these imperatives. The Gospel is in these sentences and these encouraged ways of living. And we need to see that uh, because, again, if we don't, we miss the sun and we're just an aimless planet floating out to space if we just had this imperative to live by and no gospel anchor. And that leads me to this last section, which is our theology. So let me um, read from the first five verses of that of 1 Corinthians 2, 2, that, that context there, and come back and we'll say a couple of things today. Um, so in context, Paul says, and remember, he's talking to very arrogant, prideful people, like all of us, but this is a very arrogant church. And he, he says, and I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All right, so... 
lots going on here, but I, I like how uh, self-deprecating Paul gets here. I don't know if you've ever thought this before, if, as you've read this, but um, Paul's not exactly, you know, giving himself lots of props. So um, he says, basically, when I preached to you, Corinthians, I was weak. I was afraid. I even trembled physically before you. I was so afraid. And my speech and my message were not plausible. I broke the rules of public speaking at least a dozen times. And at least a few of you fell into a deep sleep. You were so bored. So what exactly are you taking pride in then? Me? My preaching ability? The message itself? Because the message itself had nothing to do with you at all. But entirely about Jesus. It was the antithesis of a self-help message. And again, the manner by which I preached to you underscored this idea all the more. The point is, Christian preaching does have power, but the source is not the preacher, nor is it even the message, as powerful as it is, but it's the spirit behind the message because the message isn't about us and pumping up our muscles with steroids. But instead, the message is about our weakness and about actually Christ becoming weak for us, that in him we might be strong. It's about God saving us on our terms. It's about God saving us because all the good in our life wasn't even close to enough. Not even close. And so, again, Paul's saying this is the opposite of a TED Talk. This is the opposite of a... This is why preach, Christian preaching is so foolish uh, and why it should be foolish uh, to this day is it's the, op, it's the opposite of a TED Talk. It's the opposite of motivational lecture. You know, the, the world loves that stuff. But that's not preaching. If, if preaching ever sounds like that, it's not Christian preaching. It's some other jargon. But the foolishness of Christian preaching chooses to only know Christ and Him crucified in all Scripture and keeps it all about Him all the time and not, never about us. It, it, it glorifies God and keeps us low in our place as recipients, not those who climb up through religious activity. See the difference? You see how it can be called foolishness even though in God's eyes it's, it's pure wisdom? Like to the world it's ridiculous, but to us it's the power of God. It's the, it's the those of us who are being saved, it's the power, as scripture says, it's, it's the power of God. I also think, that, think this is really disarming. Like even all of that aside, you know, um, Paul is the face of Christianity aside from Jesus. Like in the first century, he wrote half the, the New Testament. He's like, he's like the guy. And this is how he describes himself, which I think is really cool. Um, this is like, if you're weak, if you tremble, if you are incredibly afraid, God loves you as you are. He is not asking you to change. Or he loves you as you, Paul still, still, as an apostle. After getting knocked on his back and seeing Jesus with his very eyes, saying, you're my son, I'm saving you, I'm calling you to be my apostle now, still afraid, still afraid, trembling. Wasn't a good public speaker. And people let him know that. But this is the kind of guy that I think images Christians. Like, we're like that, I'm like that. Like, whatever your story, this is us. We're weak, 
we're bad people who are loved. And, um, and, and the point of that is not to say, uh, kind of like make it into a little lesson and say, you know, well, if God can use Paul, he can use you. Like, I get that, right? And there's a sense to which that is true. Like, our church exists because God used broken people like, like our launch team. But at the same time, you guys are not a number to God. He, you know, think less about God using you and more about him loving you. You know, like it's, it's not, it, he didn't, the idea of God saving you is not this little carrot out in front of you that he snatches away once you're saved and then says, actually, um, I do love you, but just go change the world, you know, or something like that. Like he actually loves you. It's not, and there's no carrot. There's no asterisk. There's no qualification to that. Uh, like, like we said last week, it's um, in, in different words. Like there, there's, no, there's no asterisk to that. And so um, he loves us as we are, and, and that's, that, stays that, that stays that way. So he loves us in our imperfections. Yes, he can use us and does use us. Praise God. Um, that's an amazing truth. But you're not, a, you're not a project to God. You're not a project. You, you are not a number. Like, you're loved. And he became like you as you are to die for you as you are and me. Isn't that amazing? Like, he loves you guys. He, he loves us. And love, love does not have conditions, period, period. Always remember that. Love does not have conditions, okay? You might, you might act that way in, in your marriage or in a friendship, but you might project onto God, well, but God's different because God, for a certain epoch of history, talked in conditional terms when he gave the law. If you do this, then you will live, then I will bless you, then I'll stay close to you. But that time is over. The time is over. There are no conditions in the New Testament. It's one-way love. And, and there are actually smaller covenants in the Old Testament that image this. Uh, like when Abraham was asleep, you guys remember that? An animal was cut in half and a flaming pot passed through it. I think that's Genesis 15, but I can't remember. Right around there somewhere. It's, the idea is we are asleep when God covenants with us. We are asleep when God says, I promise to bless you. We are asleep when God says, I'll do everything and you'll watch and so even in the Old Testament, you had these smaller covenants that typified the new. They set the stage for Jesus. Uh, but all of them are different than the covenant Moses gave, that God gave through Moses. That's a conditional covenant that showed how much more we need the new. We need the unconditional. But love is always, always, always unconditional. Um, don't make God an exception to that. I also want to read from Philippians 3 with you guys. I think this phrase, decided to know nothing except Jesus, Reminded me of something else Paul said, so I want to read this with you, and we'll come back and make a couple of comments. But they are same author, different church. Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, so flesh means the good I've done in life, my moral effort, my strength. If anyone thinks they have confidence in their bodies or what they do or the good they do with their life, I actually have more. So he sounds like, you know, braggy brag here, right? But he kind of is, but he's making a point. Like he's saying, I actually, morally speaking, am better than all of you, Philippians. Um, but he's going to say none of that matters. All right, so I'll keep reading. Um, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I was perfect. I was perfect. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Look at the two kinds of righteousness here. The righteousness that belongs to me and comes from the law or the commandments, but a different kind, one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice the difference. There's two kinds of righteousness, one that comes from us, from the law, from what we do, and one that comes down in the form of a person and loves us in spite of our inability to keep his laws, to replace it, to be the one mediator between God and man. There's not two. It's not Jesus and law. It's just Jesus, as Scripture says. So lots to say about this, but note the similarity here in how Paul, you know, here and I think in 1 Corinthians 2, is stripping away other things for the sake of Christ. And not just anything, but even good things or gains. He's not stripping away losses. He's stripping away gains. He's counting gains for himself spiritually as loss for the sake of Christ because spiritual gain apart from Christ is actually loss. So he's saying Jesus is not added to the good you've done. He replaces it. You guys hear that? Like Jesus is not, when you become a Christian, Jesus is not added on to the good you've done in your form of life. He, he replaces it because all the good you've done you have to count as loss. I shed it off my body now and my soul because when it comes to Christ, it's him alone. And it's not a cocktail like with God. There's no cocktail. It's not like a mix of things. It's, it's just Christ, 200-proof Christ, like it's just him. All right? So, so the similarity here, I think, is in how Paul talks in these kind of stripping away terms. And, and not just anything, again, but like I said, it's, it's these good things. And um, so circling back to 1 Corinthians 2, I don't think we can unmarry this passage from it because Paul wrote them both, one, and, and two, they, they're getting at the same idea. When Paul says, I decided to know nothing, he's saying, I decided to not know the law. I didn't bring it to you, ultimately. Uh, I, I didn't bring you things to do in conditionality. Um, even though I did in some capacity, I talked about your life and, and I talked about how to live in community as a Christian and, and what to abstain from, all of that stuff. I ultimately, even though, even though I did, I ultimately kind of didn't like, because the former thing outweighed the latter thing so much. So you have nothing to boast in. I only brought you the story of the work of another. That's all I brought. Something to believe in, someone to believe in, and someone to walk freely in, into new life. And that leads me to this last thing, which um, in one sense, I said first service too, I could probably afford to give like a, almost a 15-minute kind of um, preface. I don't have time for that. Um, but, but I'll just say this. Um, I think that this 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 is, a, is a window in, into something greater. Um, you might be aware that Jesus has this habit in the Bible of um, plagiarizing Old Testament authors. He's not really plagiarizing. Um, but how he commandeers other people's writings for himself. Like um, classic examples when David writes the Psalms and Jesus doesn't say um, all the time, not usually, like as David said, now I am kind of like repurposing, but he's saying, he just quotes them. 
as though they're really about him, as though they belong to him. And I think that that's a window into this broader, like, you know, world of reading the Bible in a way that's not about you. Not about you, ultimately, but ultimately about Christ. And I think pastors, even in the letters, um, I would say, and this is where um, there's more content, uh, kind of contentiousness around it uh, between Christians, but I, I would say Paul, too, as the apostle, we've talked about this a lot in this church, um, even in recent years, as the apostle of Christ is not just a picture of you as a Christian, he's a picture of Jesus to his churches. So in that sense, then, I think Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2.2 are ultimately Jesus' words to us, which is to say, Jesus says, I decided to know nothing among you except my own sacrifice and love for you. And again, like Paul, that doesn't mean he didn't have other things to say. It just meant he had a hierarchy of importance to his ministry. Like a, like a couple of weeks ago in the Gospel of John where we read Jesus say, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Uh, if you weren't here for that, it's this um, se- seemingly problematic passage of when Mary wants to like, anoint him with this, this expensive perfume. And Judas is like, let's just sell it. We'll have tens of thousands of dollars to like, give to charity. You know, it's almost like a rational idea in one sense. But, but Jesus is saying, no, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. So Jesus is placing his death over the ministry of giving to the poor. Like, more important than giving to the poor is Jesus' death and resurrection. He's not saying that this is bad. He's just saying this is more important. Uh, conf- consider a couple other places, like Mark 2, where, where Jesus says, um, or where the, the paralytic Remember that story is brought to, to, through the roof, is brought to Jesus, and his friends are like, he's, gotta, he's paralyzed uh, from, from like the waist down or something. And it says in, in verse 5, Jesus said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. So again, if, if you're there, it's almost kind of problematic, right? Like initially, like that's not, why, I mean, thanks, but, right? It's one of those things, thanks, but. Um, but Jesus knows what he's doing. He's healing the cancer, not the scratch on your arm. And, and I think, even though he does heal the paralytic after this, the whole point is to teach that there's a hierarchy of theology, a hierarchy of things. And the Bible is not a static story on one shelf with all little dominoes that look exactly the same, same size, same shape, and they all represent different things in the Bible. It's more dynamic than that. There are suns and moons. There are greaters and lessers. And, and Jesus, it's impossible to read the Gospels. It's impossible to read Paul. It's impossible to read the Bible and, and not say that. Not to make you feel you know, bad if you're not seeing this. It's just to say, if you're really hearing it, though, really seeing this, you know, what can prevent us from seeing it sometimes is just bad teaching, just this kind of assumption that if God said something, it's got to be equal to something else he said. But the Bible never teaches this, ever. Something can all be God's word, but have different nuance to it, right? Like everything I've said to Aletha uh, in, my, in our marriage does not have equal weight, you know? Like, um, let's go to Target on Friday is not as important as my vows I gave, her, gave to her, right? Like this is not rocket science. It's, it's not any different with God. Like it's, it's it, and so um, we get crippled sometimes reading the Bible when we operate on those, th- those, those kind of terms. So, there's a hierarchy here, and Jesus operates that way. Um, and I think so, to, to see Jesus in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, 
then is to kind of exemplify this idea. We've already seen him apply. We've already seen Jesus talk this way, so it's not a stretch. Here it's just the spirit of really who is saying this to who, to whom, and it's, it's to us. I would say maybe most importantly in light of this is Hebrews 8, uh, the idea that we see in Hebrews 8.12, which is where God says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more, which is a crazy freeing idea that God says that when I send my son to save you, I will forget your sin. Again, kind of like Paul, God doesn't have amnesia. It's not like he's actually not knowing. It's just that he's so in love with us. And love leads to forgiveness, which leads to forgetfulness. Like his, his posture uh, towards us now is that he, Jesus decides to know nothing except his love for us. He decides to know nothing except his crucifixion and, and resurrection. He decides to so much go all in on that that everything else finds it's still helpful, but secondary place in the biblical story and, and in our lives. He sees us warts and all, but love dictates that type of forgiveness that ends up looking like a separating of our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, as the Psalms say. And so um, that, I think, is the final word here. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to you guys because, one, I think it's true, um, and I'm just preaching this verse as though I would, like, you know, on your average Sunday, whenever. But, but I'm also preaching this verse this way to show you our theology here this is top drawer stuff. This is a big deal for us. It's, Paul doesn't own those words. You know, it, this isn't a human book. This is a divine book. God is the ultimate author. He gets the final word. And all the mini words help to tell the big word, the, 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 big, the big word of his love for us. And so it fits. And so to those of you in the room who sin. If you don't sin, you can check out for a minute. But for, to those of you who, who've mess, made a mess of your life, um, who, like me, who worry about judgment and consequence and, you know, grade yourself based on your performance as a Christian every day, who have anxiety or depression, who just can't stop sinning, you know, um, welcome to the club, uh, if that's you. But if that's you, um, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 here is not here simply for philosophical reasons, but gospel reasons. Not simply for factual reasons, but sacramental reasons. In other words, when Jesus looks at you, because of his death and resurrection, he knows nothing but love for you. I mean, if that's not something that gives you a balm in the moments of what I was just describing, like when you really screw up, when you do something you know you're not supposed to do, um, or think, or whatever. Um, who is Christ to you in that moment? And I think Paul exemplifies this. And it's good news. Jesus in his hands, these are love letters. You know, in his hands he holds grace. This is not a litmus test for our own spirituality either. It's not, well, am I deciding to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Am I doing that enough? I mean, we want our leaders to be thinking those, those questions for sure here, but the ultimate litmus test is not that. Instead, the, the final word here is not about you. It's for you. It's a gift for you, but it's not about you. It's, it's Jesus saying, I'm knowing the gospel alone 
for your sake. Not your sin. Not your sin. Never your sin. Because I've so much dealt with it. I've so much been pinned to a tree to substitute myself for you. Um, to so much cover you and make it disappear like a, a white robe over a pervasive body rash. Like I've covered it up completely. And in my hands is grace. In my hands is one-way love for you. And that will never change. Let me pray.